Matthew 24. I'm going to get back into this uh, first gospel and go through it. Between Nathan and I, we've divided it up in some mysterious way. We're don't, not sure why and how, but uh, we've got a few chapters to go, and by our count, we'll finish this up the end of October if we keep moving through Matthew. So Matthew 24 this morning, we'll look at just the first two verses, which you'll see is a strange passage. You know, kids have a way of asking things, which we often find uh, almost unanswerable. It's not that we don't know the answer. Of course we know the answers. It's just some things are hard to explain. For example, if a kid asks, where's God? Now, that's not too difficult a question. We, we, we know the answer to that, uh, unless you're trying to explain it to a three-year-old. You could say he's in heaven, which is true, but you won't get the words out of your mouth before you have to face, where's that? Or you could say he's everywhere, and that's also true, but that immediately puts him in the category of imaginary friends and ghosts and make-believe, uh, not quite what you wanted to communicate. Or you could say he lives in our hearts, Oh, I dare you. But the next question is, how do you get in there? Well, that is essentially the question raised in our text this morning. Where does God live? We know he's in heaven. The issue here is, where do we find him on the earth? Let's think about it a little more this morning. Let me read the text. It's a really remarkably short text. But it's, uh, it is a separate text, it seems, because you get to the next verse and it's off in a different place. Matthew 24, the first two verses. Jesus left the temple and was walking along, as walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another Every one will be thrown down. Or let me read the parallel text of Mark. Slightly different, but the same thing. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. This is a strange text to preach because there aren't any nice points. My goal is always that when you hear the sermon, you'll be able to see, yeah, that's what my Bible says right there in that verse. And it's not going to be that way this morning. The purpose of this text is to introduce what's coming throughout this chapter and the next chapter at least. And, and, and it's important that we hear this for it drives us to face some basic practical realities of our life before God. Those basic issues towards which this whole major section presses are what I want to set before you today in two points. Not what's going to be said in these next sections, but where it's all headed and why it's being said. First, let's think about why God allowed the temple in Jerusalem to be destroyed. Because that's what he's talking about here. What should we learn from that terrible event? And that's my first point. Here's what we learn. You cannot keep God in a box. You cannot keep God 
in a box. We find containers for things that are difficult to maintain or to control. And the more difficult they are, the more impressive the container. So, for example, if your kids have toys all over the floor, you buy a toy box to contain that mess. Or on a more dangerous thing, if you have all kinds of toxic chemicals to put on your garden or whatever you do with them, you, you, you get very concerned to have containers that will contain those things. Or perhaps a worst case scenario, if you're building a nuclear reactor to harness some, its energy, you better have a containment building to keep the nuclear material under control. And that's also how we tend to deal with God. He is the ultimate all-powerful one. He does whatever he pleases, and that makes us perceive him as dangerous. So while we honor him, we also constantly try to contain him. We would never admit that, but it's true. We institutionalize him. We organize him. We bind him with rules. We tie him up in procedures. We set theological limits for him. Reduce it. We reduce his working to that which we can control. And nowhere do we find this. Nowhere would you do this to God more than in our church buildings. Our initial motives are good. But when the work is all done, and we consider the beauty, the magnificent, the magnificent structure we've built. It suddenly becomes the house of God. Let it sit there for a hundred years and it begins to take on the attributes of God. It demands reverence. And then the next step is small and subtle, but it's so very deadly. We begin to assume that this is where God lives and works. Therefore, if you want to find God, he's inside. He lives and works in the, in the church. And so we keep God in a box. A beautiful box, perhaps, but a box nonetheless. That was the Jews' problem. God himself had commissioned the building of the temple in Jerusalem. God had symbolically made his dwelling there in the Holy of Holies. Indeed, this temple was magnificent. It was an architectural wonder designed to display the majesty and the beauty of God himself. It was built on a square plateau carved out of Mount Zion that was a thousand feet uh, each way, a thousand feet wide, a thousand feet long. It was built of white marble stone, some of which were gold-plated. The stones which so impressed the disciples were indeed impressive. Some of them were 20 to 40 feet long, solid block of white marble. Some weighed more than 100 tons. The pillars which upheld the massive porches were cut from solid blocks of marble. They were 37 feet high and so thick that three men stretching out their arms to one another could barely uh, meet around one of those pillars. This temple with its balconies and courtyards covered approximately one-sixth of the whole old city of Jerusalem. In those days, it seemed easy to answer your children when they asked where God lived. It was obvious he lives there. But the Jews had fallen into the trap. They could not conceive of God working 
in any other way than what they were accustomed to see. In other words, what they were doing equaled what God was doing. So when Jesus came and didn't fit into their pattern of thinking, when he didn't admire their procedures, when he wouldn't be contained by their traditions, they rejected him. Now in our text, we see the disciples struggling with this. They loved Jesus. They were loyal to Jesus. They see the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees that we saw in this previous chapter, Jesus seven times saying, woe to you scribes, woe to you teachers of the law. But then again, look at the temple. Lord, it's awesome. There must be something to this. How can we ignore such impressive religion? Their attention and their admiration were focused on the trappings of entrenched, institutionalized religion, even though it was rejecting their Lord. Before you condemn them, just realize we get caught in the same snare. If you're visiting some great city, walk into some great cathedral sometime. Even if you know that the gospel has not been heard there in decades, see if it doesn't still cause you to have some sense of awe. But Jesus says, no. These stones are nothing but stones. Indeed, they will come to nothing. Here Jesus spoke like the prophets of old who challenged God's people who thought they had God in a box and were therefore safe. As if they had a magical power protecting them, even from God himself. That was a message that God sent to proclaim, to, uh, uh, sent through Jeremiah to proclaim to the Jews. He's back in Jeremiah 7. He, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of God, the temple of God, the temple of God. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered from all our abominations. Has this house, which I call by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I even I have seen it says the Lord. They thought they were safe from God's judgment because the temple was in their city. God couldn't touch them. So God went on in that same passage to tell the people of Jeremiah's day, you know, I used to have my name dwell in Shiloh over in the area of Ephraim. But I destroyed that because my people were wicked. Go and look and see what's left of that. I'm about to bring the same judgment on you. And in 586 B.C., God brought about the same judgment on Jerusalem. The city and the temple were utterly destroyed. Now, in the Gospels, we learn that God has sent his son. But the people of Israel were doing the same thing over again. Acting as if they had God safely contained in the temple so they could do as they pleased. They could even reject his son and God would not stop them. But you cannot keep God contained in a box. 
even a magnificent temple. Folks, you and I can't keep God contained either. It cannot be contained by how impressive they are. He cannot be contained by our programs, no matter how exhaustive they are. He cannot be contained by our theological formulations, no matter how logical they might be. He cannot be contained by our expectations, certainly not by our cultural patterns. Indeed, when all these things become boxes in which we attempt to contain the living, infinite, sovereign God, Jesus' warning applies to us. I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. You cannot keep God in a box. Jesus warned that God would tear down because it had become obsolete to his plan. For God's salvation plan is greater and more glorious than any man-made structure or organization or tradition. And so God dismantled the temple and its traditions so that we might know him, know his greater purpose, and be transformed into a new kind of temple. Which brings us to our second point. Jesus is building a living temple. Jesus is building a living temple. You know, we get concerned when people overreact. We say, oh, that response doesn't fit the little incident that you're reacting about. Maybe that's how you feel about this incident. Sure, there were inconsistencies in Judaism. There's inconsistencies everywhere. Sure, they may have institutionalized God somewhat. But the disciples were only admiring the temple building. Didn't Jesus kind of overreact when he responded with statements about the place being torn down? No. The reason we might see this as overreaction by Jesus is that we fail to see what he saw in regard to the temple. In Matthew 12, he calls himself one greater than the temple. In John 2, when his authority is questioned, he says, you you destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days, speaking of his own body. In John, later as he hung on the cross, people mocked him saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it back in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you're the son of God. Jesus was on a collision course with the attitudes of the people toward the temple. And why was that? Because Jesus' plan was not for a temple of mortar and stone. Jesus came to dwell in us as living stones built into a spiritual temple. From the beginning, Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. But isn't that what the temple was? Didn't God dwell in the temple? Wasn't God's presence in the Holy of Holies? Didn't the priests go in there to to mediate between God and and the people? Wasn't the temple where sins were atoned for, a place where people were made acceptable to God, a place where God was rightly worshipped? And now Jesus appears saying, a day is coming and now is when God will not be worshipped in this building or any other such building. Indeed, Jesus claimed that he is God's dwelling. He is the reality of which the temple was only a picture. The people were impressed with the building, which took 46 years to build. Jesus said of the temple of his body, I'll raise it up in three days. People didn't understand it all. The disciples didn't understand it all. 
but they did see that Jesus and the temple were somehow mutually exclusive. God is to be found not in that old temple of stone, but in the uncontainable Jesus. Oh, you can't overstate this truth. (laughs) The majesty and beauty of the old temple is nothing. For Jesus, God's son, became flesh and dwelt among us full of glory, and we have seen grace and truth in him. The old temple worship is forever obsolete, for it is death on the cross. Jesus once for all atoned for sins. There's no longer any need or possibility of sacrifice for sins. The old temple priesthood is now extinct. For Jesus has become the great high priest who continually intercedes for us before the throne of God. The old temple is no longer the center of worship. For Jesus lives in and among us and by his spirit whom he has given to his church. To seek God in some holy building or through some ancient ritual denies that Jesus died and rose from the dead to single-handedly restore us to fellowship with God. You see, all that God is doing, he's doing through Jesus. To reject him is to reject God. That's what the Jews did. In the name of maintaining God's temple, they rejected God's true dwelling, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that rejection, God destroyed them and their temple. As one writer explains, Jesus' prediction was fulfilled with awful finality in the destruction of Jerusalem by the legions of Rome in AD 70. After fire had raged through the temple precincts, Titus, the Roman general, ordered the demolition of the temple. This morning I warn you about finding your security, your comfort, your hope, your trust in anything other than the uncontainable risen Lord Jesus. God will bring your plans and your philosophies and even your cathedrals to nothing if you attempt to compete with Jesus. For Jesus is now building a new kind of temple, a living temple temple. We hear much of the promise of that throughout the scriptures. Just to run quickly through it, a little bit of it. In Isaiah 6, God challenges his people to build a house for him. He says, no, I'm the one that will build a suitable temple. In John 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that uh, before long, people would worship God not here on Mount Gerizim where you Samaritans worship, nor on uh, Mount Zion in Jerusalem where the Jews worship, but they would worship in spirit and in truth, a different kind of temple, a different kind of worship. Matthew 16, Jesus promised, I will build my church against which even the gates of hell cannot prevail. And in 1 Corinthians 6, the apostle Paul wrote to the church, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? In Ephesians 2, in Christ, we're no longer strangers. We're fellow citizens with God's people. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus is building a temple of living stones. We read that in 1 Peter 2. As you come to Jesus, the living stone, Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you, like living stones, 
are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is building a new kind of temple out of living stones like you and me. For the next few weeks in Matthew's gospel, we're going to hear Jesus predict not just the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but terrible times of trouble and unbelief that will follow. We must listen and brace ourselves for difficulties that we too may face. But even as we do that, there is reason for hope and reason for rejoicing. For Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and has been given dominion over everything. And by his death and resurrection, Jesus has broken down the walls that would divide and contain us and is now building us into a new temple made of living stones, people whom he has called for, to himself from every tribe and nation and language and people on earth. And the distinctive thing about this people is that God, is that Jesus is alive among us, filling us with his spirit, the power that raised him from the dead, a power that hell itself cannot overcome. Oh, speak of architectural wonder. This is one which is inconceivable to the human mind and will not be appreciated fully until we see it, this living temple in a new heaven and a new earth. So this morning I call you again to Jesus. He's the one in whom we find God. He is where God lives. He gives new life. He gives forgiveness of sins. He gives freedom from guilt. He gives power for living. He gives fellowship with the Father and life that will never end. He is the reality of everything that the temple pictured. But you cannot contain him in a box any more than they could contain him in the temple box. He is the Lord. He is God. He will not share his glory with anyone. Come to him as Thomas did and confess my Lord. And my God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're about to embark on chapters of Matthew that are really difficult for us to know. Get free, difficult for us to understand and raise more questions than we can answer. But may we not lose our way, Lord. May we realize, Lord, that Jesus is the uncontainable glory of God different than any box we might try to put you in. And that you are building a kind of temple that we've never seen because it's almost invisible. It exists kind of everywhere in little bits and pieces now. Different than magnificent cathedrals, a living temple, living stones, people you've saved, changed, given life to. So, Father, as we wade through what's coming and wade through what you say to us and the, the cautions, may we not lose track of this. May our faith grow stronger, not weaker. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you find your bulletin, there's an affirmation of faith there.
This is a simple question 